guys, before we get started today, wanted to remind you to check out another podcast, ESPN's Debatable. I've been telling you about it for weeks now. It's also a digital exclusive series. You can find it on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on Fridays with Dominic Foxworth and Pablo Torre. We check it out every day uh, and you can get it wherever you get your pods. Welcome back to the Minikai Show featuring Lenny, the only NFL podcast where one of the hosts thinks Snoop Dogg's going to be the highlight of the Super Bowl, for obvious reasons. That's Lenny, I'm Mina Kimes, and I am joined by a first-time guest, the best name at the network, our Bengals reporter, Ben Baby. Welcome to the show. Mina, that is quite the introduction. I don't know, I, I feel like you're giving me a little too much hype here, because I feel like we've got some pretty strong names over at the Worldwide Leader. Every time we say your name on NFL Live, everybody just says it over and over. Like when, when we know you're going to come on, people, everyone just says Ben Baby, Ben Baby, Ben Baby, Ben Baby. There's something so satisfying about saying it aloud. Maybe it's not just, it's like the alliterative quality, but also the syllable. I don't know. Anyways, Ben Baby, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to start with a little housekeeping. Um, first half of the podcast, Ben and I are going to talk about the Super Bowl from the Bengals perspective. Uh, and then the second half, my friend JB Long, who uh, works the Rams broadcast, who's fantastic, is going to join us to talk about the Rams side of things. Um, and I, and I want to dig into, you know, the Bengals, how we got here, the matchups, all of that with you. But first, I guess I want to ask you, back in August, did you have any indication that Cincinnati would be in the Super Bowl? Because I went back and looked at my notes from my preview podcast, and I didn't even see them finishing second in the division um, now, granted, I also didn't see the Ravens roster imploding and Baker Mayfield injuring a shoulder or whatever, but this is a team that has drastically outperformed my own expectations. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you say that because, you know, the, the Mina Kimes podcast is one of the few I listen to, especially uh, during lawn cutting season. It is uh, fantastic. And this year I made it a point to, uh, to listen to more NFL podcasts. So, no, I mean, you're not the only one. I mean, you you can go back to August. You want to ask me straight up. You go back to the beginning of December, and I said, mm, I don't know if this team is really going to be able to secure this playoff berth because, I mean, all you got to do is go back to that final month of the season. And the Bengals yeah. were, were sitting on a two-game losing streak having lost to the Chargers and the Niners. And I'm pretty sure after one of those games, Bengals coach Zach Taylor said, I don't think anybody wants to play us right now. And I said, uh, are you sure? <laughs> like, and I, I'm pretty sure I asked him, I said, what makes you say that? I said, you guys just lost like a couple games and and they were pretty confident. And I think that's probably been the most consistent thing about this Bengals team is that there's always been a sense of belief that they're a, that they can get things done. And if they play things as well as they can, they can truly beat anybody in the NFL. And so, you know, it really started to shift. There was that week, I believe 15 game against Denver, uh, and, and once they won huh. that game, they were able to go on a little bit of a run. And then it culminated, you know, they won 15, 16. And then week 17, you know, they beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. And I think that game, I said, okay, now I feel like this team truly can beat anybody. But up until then, I really questioned whether this team really had the quality necessary to eat, to make any kind of run in the postseason because they had just been unable to get over that hump. And the, the thing about these Bengals is it's not like it's a team that had a true proven track record of being good or, or a, right. a sense of quality yeah. about them. I mean, this was a team that hadn't made the playoffs since 2015. And, and throughout the course of even this 2021 season, 
every time it looked like they were good, they'd run into Mike White or lose to the Browns or run into the Mike you know White. the AFC oh West. God, I forgot about Mike so White. yeah, yeah, don't do not oh, forget that Mike White obliterated the Bengals this season. Well, okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, I said I didn't I underestimated them in August, but if you had asked me in November if the Bengals would be in the Super Bowl, I would have said no. And uh, there's there's a bunch of things that have changed and happened since then. Um, one of which is the Bengals have had, by the way, continued good health. Uh, you know, I mentioned the other AFC North teams, but um, I, I think the single biggest change from even as late as that point in the season was during the streak that you spoke of after the Denver game, which was kind of tight. Uh, it was uh, like fifteen to ten or something, if I remember correctly, something like that. Anyways. Um, Zach Taylor basically decided to let Joe Burrow cook. And it was, you know, a lot of my, some of my skepticism of this team was because the defense I thought was just solid. And since in the postseason, I've talked about this a lot, they've really outperformed um, even how they were playing in the, in the middle of the season. But throughout much of this season, this Bengals offense was not good. Like they were not good. It, it, not just statistically, like when you watch them, they were inefficient. Joe Burrow was turning the ball over. Obviously we know about, um, the issues in protection every now and then Jamar Chase would have an insane game but there were games Ben where he was you know he largely disappeared and um, I guess you know that is I think a good point to flip to this game because to me like something I've spoken a lot about and I want to hear your thoughts there's a big decision to be made by Taylor um, headed into this matchup with the Rams where they're so uh, you know it's such a mismatch in the trenches how much do you lean on Joe Burrow? Because, you know, you get destroyed by the Titans pass rush and the next game he goes with an extraordinarily conservative game plan. What is the best approach in your mind headed into this matchup against a very fearsome uh, Rams pass rush? Yeah, you know, Mina, it's incredibly fascinating. And if you want to go back and if anyone gets really bored and wants to find my tweet from the Denver game, it's really just me wanting to claw my eyes out because it was just <laughs> such a horrendous display of football. Can we just end this thing? I was like, all these people so are in Denver. It was a beautiful day and they're stuck watching this garbage football game. But it was a gritty kind of game that the Bengals kind of needed to win. And in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of important that they won that game that way. Because it showed that the defense was able to go out and make some key plays. And if you'll remember, Denver was actually knocking on the door with Drew Locke to take the lead in that game and really do some, you know, really put the Bengals' playoff hopes on the ropes. All of a sudden, Khalid Kareem, a rotational edge rusher, rips the ball literally out of Drew Locke's hands near the goal line and runs it back, gets a, gets a turnover. That really changes the momentum of the game uh, for those of you who believe in momentum. <laughs> and, and I think that that was a, a big point in that there is a kind of a blueprint on how this Bengals team has will win. And as you said, the offense really hasn't been good because of, I, I, fr quite frankly, no matter what Zach Taylor or Joe Burrow say, I think there's a lot of skepticism internally about the offensive line. And, and you look at it and they did let Burrow cook for a little bit. He, he was good against Baltimore because Baltimore not only was depleted, but they couldn't stop him the first time either. Yeah. Uh, even with Marlon Humphrey, it didn't really matter. And with the full complement of players, it was irrelevant. The Bengals still torched with Martindale's defense. And then against Kansas City, which I thought the Bengals' best you know plan would have been maybe to run the ball a little bit, try to bleed a little clock. No. They said, we're going empty. We're going 11 personnel. And you said, oh, you think you got a good offense? Well, we think we've got an even better one. And I was said, okay, that kind of took me by surprise because that Kansas City front is pretty good. 
And so I was looking at it and I was thinking a lot over the last you know couple of days, and we talked about this a little bit. The way that they play Kansas City the second time looks mm-hmm. a lot different than the way they play Kansas yes. City the first time. I and see. I go, I go, well, well, what happened in between that? I said, Oh, nine sacks against Tennessee happened. Yeah. And it was almost like Zach Taylor said, uh, we're not going to get this kid killed. And I don't really care what's going to happen here. We've got to be mindful of it. And, and they've said all the right things publicly about it. But when you look at the way that they've schemed things up, it's very clear that they do not want to put Burrow at risk. And I don't think it's a – I think there's some caution behind that. But I also think they believe this defense is actually good enough. And mm. we saw in, – in, in the real tell, if you go back, so in week one against Minnesota, the Bengals were up. 21 to seven, I believe. And they went forward on fourth and one at their own 30 in the third quarter. And people were just losing their minds. But Zach Taylor said, you know what? I want to go for the jugular and we've been playing pretty well. And more importantly, our defense has held them the entire game. And the Bengals didn't convert. It didn't work out. And everyone kind of lost their minds because the Vikings ended up tying the game. And it's a game the Bengals almost lost. But the Vikings also had to convert a fourth down to keep their drive going on the ensuing possession. And the Bengals ultimately got a turnover at the end of the game. Jermaine Pratt and Jesse Bates combined for a big force fumble on Dalvin Cook that really set the tone for, for I think, for the way that we were going to see the season play out. And I think all year that we've, like, it's not just you. I think everybody, including us locally, did not believe this defense was really going to be as good mm. as it was. And I think that's why Zach Taylor, when you saw what they did against Kansas City, you're looking at, okay, you know, they they used a lot of runs, and I listened to the podcast last week, and I thought Jerry's Butler made a good point in that, you know, it, the, the early down runs may not be the most productive or the most logical plays, but they may be the most sensible in the fact that when you actually do think you can throw it, when you do think you can create a good matchup, you're at least going to create the, you're going to increase the probability that your pocket's going to hold. And I think that's the thing. And and if you remember in that Kansas City game, they they think they did try a deep ball to Jamar Chase. Burrow got intercepted, but yeah. they were setting it up, I think, with a lot of play action and a lot of early downs because they just don't have the offensive line to drop Burrow back a ton. And to be honest, I think that's shown a little bit of growth out of Zach Taylor because I think in maybe 2019 or 2020, they may have been stubborn and said, this is the way we're going to win. This is the identity we want to want to have. But to Taylor's credit, he doesn't seem to have an ego about him, and he's willing to do whatever he thinks is going to work for the for the sake of the team, which is kind of rare in coaches. So I think that maybe we may see a little bit of. I mean, we could keep, I could keep talking about this for a while, so I'll stop. Well, this but, is I feel like the defining question for the Bengals, right? Well, on offense, we'll talk about the defense in a second, and the defense is. You're absolutely right. A, a big part of the reason I imagine why they went conservative in addition to um, protecting Burrow and that offensive line, but it took an outrageous performance from the Bagels defense for it to work. I think we got to note that, right? And we're going to talk about the Bagels defense. Um, and I'm not sure what they did to Patrick Mahomes in the second half is replicable. <laughs> um, I'm also not sure you can count on as much third down out performance by Joe Burrow. I mean, basically, you know, what he did on third down in this game against Kansas City and what he's done with both his legs and then some of those clutch throws to T. Higgins, um, enabled, of course, by um, uh, the Chiefs, you know, focusing so much attention on Chase. It's great. It's also, I think to your point, um, some of it is set up a little bit by the run game. but you'd really not want him to be in so many thirds 
and longs. And I guess my feeling, Ben, is like there has to there's probably a middle ground here, right? Where you're not just leaving him back there and empty to die. <laughs> Although that's also where they get a lot of their explosive plays out of, so you're kind of rolling the dice. But you're also not running the ball if it's unsuccessful against a Rams defensive front that has been extremely stout against the run over the last few weeks. Yeah, they've been uh, one of the best, if not the best, uh, at least one of the best uh, teams against the run. Uh, it's something I talked to, to Bengals tight end Drew Sample about as well, and, and they realize how big a challenge it is. And in and to the uh, the Bengals' confidence credit, he goes, "We wouldn't want it any other way." So I said, "You know, good for you that you want Aaron Donald uh, in your in your final matchup. It's like the final boss level in a video <laughs> game. Sure, yeah. by all means, if that's what you're looking yeah. for, well, you sure. definitely I'm got sure it. They're stoked about it. Yeah." Right. But I, I think that we'll learn a lot about this game. I wonder if we, if, you know, Zach Taylor is going to script this thing and we'll learn in the first 10 to 15 plays what exactly, or that first series, how the Bengals are going to operate. Are they going to try to get, you know, are they going to use more protection in there? Yeah. Are they going to try to see what they're going to have? Because the issue is as well, is that if you check into more protection, it's, it is going to lead to heavier boxes. And, and I wonder, and, and Taylor is very adamant, uh, you know, I think they do like to create light boxes as much as possible because um, it creates a lot of advantageous matchups. And especially mm-hmm. when they're giving Burrow two plays at the line of scrimmage, if he likes what he sees, he has the freedom to check into a run play. So, you know, we'll see, you know, and Taylor has been a staunch proponent of 11, you know, him and coming yeah. out of that Sean McVay tree, he has absolutely loved 11 personnel. He's worked in a little more 12 personnel, a little more six offensive line packages this year. We've actually seen a good amount of that as they've really tried to identify, um, you know, some sort of run scheme that's going to work. They brought back Frank Pollock, who was previously an assistant before Taylor got here. Uh, they wanted to run this wide zone scheme and, and it's worked to some degree, but really the run game has struggled as the offensive line has struggled as well. But the, the the other big question is, I think if you're the Bengals, and this might dictate the offensive strategy, do you think you can get back here again? Mm. And do, Because if you don't, then maybe you don't care, to be quite honest, how many hits Joe Burrow takes, you know, and you're saying, you know what, this is our only chance. Well, we are going to go out there and we're going to let fly. Or, he can heal up. Is, that's right. Or do you say, we're not the Rams. We didn't go all in this year. We've got a really yeah. young core. We've got Joe Burrow still in his second year. Jamar Chase is a rookie. T. Higgins in his second year. Joe Mixon's on a fresh year of a new deal. Tyler Boyd's still pretty young. You know, we've got a new left tackle or a youngish left tackle in Jonah Williams. We feel like we've got enough young pieces. And with this guy who we drafted to be a franchise quarterback, we didn't draft him to go to the Super Bowl in year two. We drafted him to compete for Super Bowls for like a decade. Yeah. If you go with that mentality and you go, okay, we'll see then maybe that then you are a little more hesitant because the way they came out against Kansas City was much different than the way they came out the first time and i wonder yeah. if that isn't in the back of Taylor's mind and that you know we feel like we've got a good team for years to come let's maybe play it safe a little bit so it's it's a very interesting strategy yeah, matchups too matter because Kansas City is not good against the run, even though like Joe Mixon was not particularly effective in this game. Actually, it was extraordinarily ineffective in this game through the first three quarters. But, um, you know, I think they're going to be cognizant of the Rams' defensive front. Also, I think um, we'll see what happens with that opening script, but also I think they've got to see how the Rams play them. Uh, you know, J.B. Long and I are going to talk about how Jalen Ramsey will or won't handle Jamar Chase. But, you know, we're coming off a game in which the Rams had a very specific game plan for the San Francisco 49ers to stop the run with those, you know, five-man runs, fronts, pardon me, with the single linebacker. And I don't think that's going to be the approach against Cincinnati. So I'll be curious to see early on 
what how the Rams approach them on defense and then in turn how the Bengals adjust. I do want to note something. I thought this was really interesting from our SIG group. One of the stats that they put out uh, about Joe Burrow and his sack rate. When uh, the Bengals have five route runners, his sack percentage is actually lower. His pressure percentage is lower. That's because he's getting the ball out so quick. Um, like I said, they've been, they've been, he's been a very good empty quarterback. I also think it's just because of his ability to bail himself out of pressure with his legs and his exceptional pocket management. But, you know, I, I guess I just, I know nine sacks was insane. I know this Bengals offensive line is terrible, but um, I, I feel like, and as good as that defense played, and we're about to talk about them, you gotta, you gotta dance with the gal that brought you, um, and in Joe Burrow, and I just don't, I just want the ball in his hands a lot. That's all. That's just, I, and also, like I said, I was so underwhelmed by the offensive approach in the first half of the season. I think some of that's in my mind as well. So I think that here's and here's something else to this, and I think that they were mindful of it. Maybe, and this goes back to the point we we're talking about earlier. In recent weeks, Joe Burrow's actually been a lot more open about how comfortable he was inside the pocket. Mm. And he said until the bye week, which was week 11, that's when he really started to feel like himself in terms of evading pressure, you know, being able to take on free blitzers. And that you got to remember, he came back and didn't miss a single OTA. Mina, he was out there for the first day of OTAs. He was there for all of training camp. He was cleared, even though he suffered that injury, uh, you know, where he tore his ACL, injured his MCL. Uh, you know, last year in, against Washington. And and I feel like that was also maybe they were trying to protect him a little bit more. And as he became more comfortable in the pocket, they started to open things up a little bit. And I, I wonder if those two aren't related. And, and Burrow is a guy to, you know, we wrote about it on ESPN.com is that he actually loves contact. Like I remember talking to his high school coach and it was like, we had to tell him like he kept lobbying to be live and drills and wanted to hit and stuff like that. We're like, no, Joe, you're the quarterback. You're not doing that. There was in the state title game of his senior year, his, and his high school was bad, like bad, bad before he got there. Uh, So there's a common theme about Joe Burrow and the teams he joins and how quickly they become good uh, throughout his life. But there is a play, you want to go back and find it, go look up the Athens High uh, Toledo Central Catholic game. It's a fantastic game. Joe Burrow called it the worst day of his life at the time and said it's something he still thinks about because they lost this game. But he was a cornerback or he was a defensive back on this game-winning drive for Toledo Central Catholic. And Burrow went in there and absolutely tried to spear Michael Warren, who could not be stopped, a running back, who played for Cincinnati and was in the NFL. But he went out there with no regard for anything and tried to level him. And it's incredible because Warren absolutely gets stonewalled, somehow does not go down, staggers for a few more yards, and then lays down once he gets there. And I asked Burrow about that. Uh, earlier this week. And I said, Hey, you know, when have you talked to Warren about this or what do you remember that about that? And he said, actually we were training together. They go to the same gym. And I asked Warren, I asked Burrow, was that, you know, did Warren say ever say if that's the hardest he's ever been hit by an offensive player and Burrow just kind of laughed. He goes, that's what he said uh, as a way. It was, yeah, you bet. <laughs> and like Joe, every time I've ever talked to anybody, about Joe Burrow, it's that he loves to get hit and he Ugh. loves contact. And Bengals it's a very strange fans, fans are shuddering listening to you say yes. that. Yes. But I think that there's something that he like craves. He like relishes it. And he like he likes to say, you know what, come and get me. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you miss and then I'm gonna go make you pay. <sighs> and so it is a very weird, like it, you're dancing with the bull here. Yes. Uh, and those horns are gonna be will be sharp. And Aaron Donald is a is one of the best bulls you're gonna find. So <laughs> 
I think that this is going to be really fascinating. It's a high risk, high reward game. And yeah. eventually maybe Burrow will get wise, but you know, I think he's, he, he had a very good point after one of these games, he's kind of, they're too young to know what they don't know. And so that's kind of why they've been good, but eventually you're going to know. And you know, I, that we'll see how that changes. That, that's such a good way to describe how he plays too. Like the, he plays like he's young. Like he's so, I mean, his, his superpower is his fearlessness throwing the ball into tight windows and, attempting it which is incredible by the way they went uh he was one for eight on go balls in the Chiefs game it's amazing to to hear that number and and know that the Bengals still won but his other superpower is of course his pocket management which is where he's not young because it's kind of other it, it, you know it, it does remind a bit of Brady sometimes watching him manage a collapsing pocket and evade pressure but um you know the the one thing I would be concerned about in this game is I think the Rams four-man rush is a lot better at containing than the Chiefs are. Um, you know, Chris Jones is very good. Uh, Joe Pro put him in absolute hell. But uh, I do think, like you said, Aaron Donald is a different proposition in that regard. So, you know, again, I just like, I don't want to see Joe Burrow in third and long run, you know, trying to sidestep Aaron Donald and pick up some of the, like the kinds of third downs he did against the Chiefs. Um, all right. I, I, I'm very excited I've loved watching him and Chase and everything that they've done. And I think you're right in that we'll see pretty early on uh, how Zach Taylor views this matchup in the best approach. Um, I can't say that we'll see early on how the Bengals defense is going to play it, because if there's one thing we've realized about this Bengals defense, then it's that they will do anything. They will play any coverage. They will make any adjustments. Uh, they might be the most adaptive unit in the NFL. And I think that is one of the other many things I completely underestimated about this team. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating because in players have called Luana Rumo, the defensive coordinator, a mad scientist because, and it's true. I mean, I've watched it for three years. Now the thing is it hasn't always worked over the last few years. And sometimes Anna Rumo tinkered maybe a little bit too much. Like I remember one game his first year, they played like an inverted cover two with the slot cornerback playing the cover two. And I was like, well, why wouldn't you, if you're going to play inverted cover two, why not play it with your outside corners instead of the slot guy? Because the slot guy usually isn't in the boundary. So stuff like that. I'd be like, that's a little strange. But you know, it is that Anna Rumo to his credit He's always viewed like he's he came in and always has had a very unorthodox view of what the defense should look like. Uh, like, for example, he he viewed his defense always as a three, four, even though the edge guys were Carlos Dunlap and Sam Hubbard, guys who traditionally you would not expect to be base three, four edge rushers yet. That's what they've done. And Hubbard, to his credit, has kind of picked up on this. Carlos Dunlap, as you as you might know, did not. And they quickly yeah. he quickly found a way out and he is in Seattle. Uh, because of that. But Hubbard has been a guy who's dropped into coverage and been that guy who plays kind of that hybrid 3-4 edge rusher role for them. But Anarumo has always been very upfront and saying, NFL quarterbacks now are too good that if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, eventually they're going to figure it out mm. and you are not going to succeed. So if you give them the same looks and if you play the same style over and over and you're not adaptive, you're essentially going to get torched. Now, the difference is, I think, in the way that Anarumo has grown. And Mina, I have to, I cannot say this enough. There was, I feel like, a lot of people, especially in Cincinnati, a lot of fans, who if they had gotten rid of Anarumo after two years, would not have said a word. I mean, yeah. they probably wouldn't have said a word if they got rid of Taylor either. 
um, to be quite honest. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the coaching staff had six wins in two years. And there was everyone's been talking about the patience that they've showed and all of that in the front office in Zach and the coaches. And, and to Zach's credit, he didn't make a rash change for the sake of making change and say, you know what, we're going to fire a coordinator and do whatever. They had a lot of faith in Anna Rumo and a guy who wasn't previously a full-time coordinator ever before coming to Cincinnati is and given how late he is in his career, that is actually a little surprising, but the players have really bought in. And, and I think that there is a very much a, uh, there's a very much like an Italian family vibe in this and, and players of references to a certain degree, you know, Lou, Lou Rumo's from Staten Island. He's very Staten Island through and through. And Jesse Bates had a very good point and told me volumes about why uh, this, uh, this defense is the way it is. And Bates actually said it to the group. Uh, Cause I'm not trying to take credit for some exclusive that I didn't get. I don't, I don't need the cloud here, Mina, uh, <laughs> but Bates said, you know, Lou, he'll come in some days and be like, Lou, I ain't talking to you. Like Lou got me a little heated the day before. Like I need, I need my space from you. But the, the, but in the fact that Bates said that meant that their relationship was so good. And there's such a good understanding that you can say things and you can kind of be, you can maybe be tough with each other and be accountable with each other in a way that isn't harmful or, or really attacking in that way. And I think that it maybe took a little, maybe a little while for that to come across, but this year's team, if you, if you ask the guys on that defense, why they've been so good, especially the secondary, a lot of guys have said it's because of the accountability that's on that side of the ball. And Anna Rumo has said that as well. Whenever they're trying to tinker with some things, you know, he'll ask veteran guys, say, Hey, what's going on? How are we liking this? And he's very open to how things are going. And Samaj P. Ryan yesterday made a very good point about, you know, maybe the vibe on the team. He goes, you know, we have coaches, everyone seems like they're peers. It's not like there's a big hierarchy here. There's a lot of, there's a lot of open communication throughout the team. And I think especially on the defensive side of the ball, as Anna Rumo is asking them to do some unorthodox things and maybe trying some new things out that are not traditional. I think the fact that the players are willing to go along with that and have that trust in Anarumo and also Anarumo having the ear of his players and being able to say, okay, is this working? Is this not working? What do we need to tweak? And I, and I said, how do you balance that versatility? And he goes, you know, we're not, as long as we're not asking them to do something they haven't done technique wise before, like at your base level, you're still playing cornerback. You're still playing linebacker. You're still playing as a defensive lineman. Now what we're asking you to do within the scheme may be a little different, but it's still operating within your same base function. We're not changing the base function. And I think that's what Anarumo has been so good at is that he's been able to extrapolate things out of the defense, but at the same time, letting players operate freely in what they do well. And it helps that he's been given a much better roster than what he got in 2019. I mean, I don't know how he did what he did in 19 with the roster that he had, but he finally got an edge rusher. I mean, they gave him younger and better players, which is something I think that he would have been thrilled about when you looked at what they inherited in 2019. So I think that also is a big part of it. The front office said, oh, Maybe we should go help them out a little bit. And, Invest and in the that. defense and free agency. I don't know if you saw a um, on live on Friday. We put up the uh, the 2019 starting week one roster and then the Super Bowl roster, and it's just Sam Hubbard and Jesse Bates. That's it. Both of them have been spectacular in the postseason. Um, and I think that also kind of explains, you know, why maybe the defense took uh, some of the season to kind of come together because there's so many free agents and some rookies as well. And, you know, DJ reader didn't play last year. Who's been excellent. And uh, the whole, they rebuilt the entire secondary basically on the fly. And so it kind of makes sense that they're peaking now. Um, It also makes sense, as you said, that like when you watch them, I mean that they're buying into Anarumo's adjustments and schematic versatility because 
you know, if you had told me at halftime, hey, we're going to come out against the Chiefs and we're going to rush three, drop eight, and play man coverage, cover one man uh, with the robber, I I, I would have said, good luck. You're going to get killed, you know, but um, this is a defense that is willing to make those sorts of adjustments on the fly. And they certainly gave Sean McVay a lot to think about in that game. And that's something I, I guess now I'm trying to puzzle through. You just come come off, off of this AFC championship where you um, did such a phenomenal job of confusing Patrick Mahomes, basically putting him on tilt, covering, and then of course that uh, that defensive line was spectacular in their efforts and ability to um, contain Mahomes, Mahomes to take away his rush lanes. Now you got Matt Stafford and you got this Rams offense. Um, I would have, if you had asked me, like I don't know. Before the postseason, like, okay, what are they going to do against Matt Stafford? I would have said, Ben, I'm sure they're just going to play too high, right? And count on that four-man rush, and maybe there'll be, like, a little bit of disguise in the back end. What do you think now, coming off of this AFC Championship game where they went away from too high in the second half, and then also coming off of a postseason where you've just seen the Bengals play so many different um, types of coverages against different quarterbacks? You know, I think that the, I mean, if I'll be honest, I think the secret sauce is in a, wearing number 30 in Jesse Bates. And the fact that he's playing so well, I think has been an underrated, I think that's a big reason why Anarumo's allowed to be versatile because he's got a rare safety who's got the speed, he's in his prime, and he can, he covers so much range. I mean, the, if you want to, if you go back and look at the interception that turned the game around, Bates had to cover an insane it's amount so of ground. Crazy. It reminded me of Earl get, Thomas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was just, it was phenomenal. And, and Bates is a really athletic guy. I mean, I saw him return a punt for a touchdown at Wake against Texas A&M in the Belk Bowl. And, and he was, I was like, oh, this guy, I mean, that was the most impressive play that I think that entire game. And, and I was I'm not saying a whole lot. I mean, it is the Belk Bowl, <laughs> but still uh, yeah, that shows you that the fact that a power five team is putting their safety back there to return punts is not a small thing. And that mean, that usually means you've got a ton of speed. Uh, and, and Bates allows Anarumo, because he covers so much space, you have the ability to be more flexible up front. And I think that that will be, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they defend uh, both Cooper Cup and, and Odell Beckham Jr. You know, Cup has made a living off the crossers this year. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to see how they're going to do it. He's been, you know, looking at it, um, you know, the yardage, I believe cups cup on crossers, according to NFL next gen, it's one of the most productive routes in the NFL. Interestingly enough, the most productive route has been the go ball to Jamar chase, which is crazy when you consider uh, during the regular season, no, no wide receiver picked up more yards on a route than Jamar chase on go balls, uh, which I found really fascinating. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Cooper cups crossers are in there. Yeah, but Bates will give you the idea, the ability to play cover one, and the, but you also need to get some pressure. And I think that was a big difference in that second half against Kansas City as well, is that Trey Hendrickson was able to be very disruptive. And the Bengals just really, for many years, relied on Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins to provide the bulk of their pass rush. And really, it was Geno Atkins. You know, Carlos Dunlap would bring it, you know, occasionally, and it was was very good when he did. But they you know, they didn't, weren't able to get enough pressure out of that front. And I think that's bringing in Hendrickson, who I was very skeptical of and was wondering when you looked at the pass, run, pass rush win rate, if he was going to be able to replicate that 2020 season in Cincinnati. And sure enough, he definitely has. And then some, I think if he's able to get some pressure and they're able to, and Bates is able to continue to play this well. And I think he is because he's in a really, and this can't be understated enough, his mental headspace is significantly better than it was early and in the middle of the season because of the stalled contract negotiations that really mm. messed with his head and the Bengals 
pay dearly, to be mm. quite honest. And they're very lucky that Bates figured it out. But, you know, he's been very open and honest that he's gotten in a much better mental health space and that's helped him play better. And you're definitely seeing that on the field. So Anna is going to have a lot of reason to be flexible because Bates is going to take up so much space on the back. You can play cover one up top. You can use Von Bell closer to the box, or you can shade him in whichever direction, maybe in the middle to eat up some space, play that robber role uh, with Cooper Krupp coming across the middle. They have a lot of confidence in their corners in Chidabe Awuzie and Eli Apple. So I, I feel like, which, you know, and it's funny, Eli Apple is playing so well that they're paying Trey Wayne's $15 million to play on special teams. So that tells you everything you need to know. But I, I think that th- if this team is going to win, it's going to be the Bengals have to win the turnover margin. If you look at it, the offense has not been good. They have not been effective throughout mm-hmm. the entire postseason. But what they have done is been able to create a ton of turnovers. Um, and I believe they lead all playoff teams that played in the in the conference semis in turnovers, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. that turnover margin is going to be huge. Feels like it. Yeah, and I think that's going to be key. And that's usually not great because um... – you know, so I mean, you can look back at plays like uh, I don't know, Joe Burrow basically threw the ball at Nick Bolton in the game, and uh, uh, and then some turnovers that they benefited from. And although it is, you know, in part a reflection, I think of how good the pass rush has been and how good Jesse Bates has been, and opportunistic that secondary has looked. Um, Eli Apple dropped like a very uh, easy turnover at one point, right? Was that this game or the previous game? I don't remember. Anyways. It goes both ways is all I'm saying. But um, yeah, I, I think like we can safely assume that they're going to um, bracket Cooper Cup in some way. You, you talked about using Von Bell as a robber um, to take away some of those crossers. Um, there's, there, I, I feel pretty confident in saying whatever approach the Bengals take and however they decide to spin their safeties, there will be extra bodies in coverage against this Rams team. I think the Chiefs, we talked about this last week with Darius, you know, fell short. There were opportunities to run the ball and they didn't. Um, I, I think the Rams will take those opportunities if the Bengals basically dare them to run it, whether it's, you know, playing too high or just having that three-man rush. Um, with Stafford stepping up and escaping in a way that maybe Mahomes didn't, which is weird to say. Like, that. But Stafford's actually pretty sneaky mobile. Anyways, I, I think my the question for you then is if the Bengals – do focus more on stopping stopping the pass. Do you have confidence in that front seven to stop the Rams' rushing attack? I definitely do, and and I think that DJ Reader gets doesn't get enough credit as well. I mean, that's a dude who eats up a ton of space at the line of scrimmage. And when they signed him, they signed him to I believe a four year, fifty three million dollar deal. And usually, we see that kind of money spent on edge rushers if you're going to spend that on defensive linemen. DJ Reader is not a guy who gets after the quarterback. But what we've seen over the course of especially this playoff run is that he just wreaks a ton of havoc. And we're actually seeing him get upfield a little bit more uh, this year in, in the postseason. And he is a guy who can eat up a ton of space in the middle, is incredibly disruptive. And, and really, this is a game of two, um, you know, the, the matchup between Aaron Donald and DJ Reader are ways, it's, it's a prime example of two completely different ways to play mm-hmm. defensive tackle but play it in a very disruptive way that helps your defense. And whereas Aaron Donald is primarily a pass rusher who just eats guys in the middle alive, DJ Reader is such a handful and a menace that it frees up the linebackers and Logan Wilson and Jermaine Pratt to basically pick their gap and go. And it makes things easier. Even as they lost Larry Ogunjobi, they have the other starting, um, you know, three tech and defensive tackle for the Bengals. Uh, They've actually been able to supplant that. Okay. Like they're literally dragging in dudes off the street, 
to come in and play snaps and it's working like guys like like zach Sam- who sample had the big yeah, play right a couple of yes years. i think so i think it was camp sample who had had a big play uh, a couple of weeks no it was bj hill BJ oh, Hill, he's been good, tra- man. BJ, BJ Hill's awesome. been very good. Yeah, they got him in a trade. They traded uh, him for Billy, uh, traded Billy Price for him, and that's worked out well for both sides. Billy got a fresh start in New York, and the Bengals got some help at DT. But like guys like Zach Kerr, Damian Square, people I had never heard of, quite frankly, and Damian Square played against the Bengals, like in the against the Raiders game. He was just some spare defensive tackle. They're working. Tyler Shelvin, who that was their fourth round pick, who could not be active to save his life during the regular season. He's getting snaps. Like guys next to Reader are suddenly are just being productive. It doesn't matter who they put in there. And Reader's been really, really good. So I think that because of how well he's playing, and he's been worth every dollar for the Bengals, I, I think that that's going to be a, a – that gives them comfort. You know, we talked about Jesse Bates in the back end. Reader's kind of that guy on the front end that he does so much, even if it doesn't look like it, he does so much dirty work that it does allow you to be a little bit flexible in different ways and, and say, you know what, we can we, we have trust that our backers can essentially fit the right gap because Reader's going to open things up and we're not going to have to worry about guys' offensive linemen getting to the second level. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right about their ability to stop the run. I also think that you can do everything possible to try to stop Cooper Cup on third down, um, and it, it it's not always going to work, frankly. It's just not. But I also think, to your point, um, this ultimately will probably come down for Cincinnati to whether or not Matthew Stafford has some of the turnovers that have plagued him all season that he tempted fate with in the last game as well. Um, it feels like then if he plays a clean game, it's just going to be very challenging to stop it. Cause even it like to go back to coupling, forget um, whether or not cup eats on those third downs, you know, you're going to the Rams, are going to they, they they've shown a willingness to go elsewhere. I actually don't know what Higby's status is for this game, but whether it's a Kendall Blanton, a Van Jefferson, obviously Beckham, like the, the, it's impossible to cover all of these guys, especially in man. Which I I feel like the Bengals probably won't play too much man, but um, at some point Matthew Stafford has to turn the ball over for this to work, like you said. And guess what? It very well could happen. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a big part of the reason why I'm like so apprehensive about leaning too hard into the Rams offense versus the Bengals defense is just because, as you mentioned, the Bengals defense has been opportunistic and Stafford has shown so many points during this season, carelessness with the football. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree. And, and the one thing that the Bengals have not been shy about is saying, we'll give up a ton of yards. Like, we don't care. Like, yeah, sure, we've given up a thousand yards in the postseason more than any other team. Who cares? But... If you, I think that there is a insane amount of confidence, and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It is stunning how they always feel like they can get a turnover, no matter what point of the game it is, or matter the down and distance. Like going back in that first game, like it wasn't an accident that Dalvin Cook fumbled right as they were getting into field goal position. It wasn't an accident that they've been able to they made that play against Denver and, and Drew Locke fumbled and had the ball just jacked from him, you know, right near the goal line. Like the Bengals have made it a point, and Anna Rumo has preached all year that basically we are going to go and get turnovers. Like it's something they were not good at the last couple of years. And it has been something they've preached all year. And they do not care where they're at in the game, what the game situation is, down a distance, whatever. They feel like they can get a turnover whenever. And you mentioned the Eli Apple play. Apple dropped a pick six that probably could have won the game. I mean, it's a likely pick six. The very next play, the Bengals went out there and got an interception. 
And so it's like a, a to, to use a, a to, I don't, I, you know, for whatever reason, everything always goes back to cricket, especially since I'm watching a ton of it. And basically the, the theory is that if you are aggressive enough and you play, if you, if you are t- effective enough and aggressive enough with how you set your defense, good things happen. And eventually you're going to, you might gamble on giving up some big stuff, but you're going to get the big thing you're looking for in cricket. It's wickets. We don't have a whole lot of time to explain this, but I feel like the Bengals, <laughs> I feel like the Bengals are doing the same thing and saying, we're going to give up yards. We're going to let you get wherever you want. But at the end of the day, our goal is to get you off the field, whether that's on third down or if, we, if you're in the red zone and we get you on a turnover, we get you on a turnover, or we hold you to a field goal. Like they are very adamant that the, the mentality of we are basically, and you, like you said, it is very risky because it is not sustained. We've learned it's not sustainable year over year to say we're going to base our defense on getting turnovers. But yeah. within the season, it could be. I mean, that, that's the thing is that they, they basically have made it a mentality and saying, uh, you know, we're going to go out and we're predicating our defense uh, on yeah. getting these turnovers. You're playing and Stafford. It's, it's not Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. So it's a very right. believable thing that could happen in this football game is all I'm saying. Um, it, it, you know, I, you, it is not hard to imagine Stafford, I don't know, turning the ball over early in the game and that sort of changing um, game script for both sides. Um, ben, I, I just want to wrap up here by finishing – with a discussion uh, about what I think is the Bengals' biggest matchup advantage in this football game. Kicker. Oh, my God. Uh, Evan McPherson. What do they call him? Money Mac? Uh, I believe they call him Shooter McPherson now. Nah. It's not as good. It's not as good. Money Mac is... I, I tend to lead my guy James Rapine coined Money Mac early in the offs in the in the preseason. It has it seems to have stuck. Okay. I, the, the players seem to um, like Shooter. I don't really know. I don't feel like you can't choose your own nicknames as well. I feel like your nicknames have to be given to you, but whatever you call him, McPherson has just been insane. Dominant, throughout dominant, the postseason, right? dominant. I actually believe he already has broken the record for the most fifty plus yard kicks field goals ever, including what he's done in the postseason. I mean this. Kid is free. so fifth round draft pick this year, right? Uh, was it Florida? Yes, it's correct. For it was Florida. This kid is freaking nails. And meanwhile, the other side of the ball, you got Matt Gay, who has kind of, I don't know if he's got a baby leg or whatever, but you saw him that forty seven yarder fall short. Um, I, I'm just this could be a big factor in this game. It's certainly going to affect the Bengals' decision making for better or worse. And um, yeah, I just it's you know we don't talk about special teams, but advantage Cincinnati you know it is such a bizarre way to view football but like it and it's it's very true though like this Bengals team is basically it's very I, I come from Texas where we like to score a lot of points and we'd like to throw it around a lot and we'll basically beat you 70 to 63 if we can like that's not that's fine like you want to you know we're basically as long as we have one more touchdown than you at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what we give up this Bengals team however has been winning games based on their defense and their kicker and I'm just sitting here going, these are some, it's some bad football to watch, but it, it works. And in that Tennessee game so was a, a prime. It's a prime example because Tennessee, you could tell. I, I don't really know what Matt Vrabel was doing at the end of regulation, to be quite honest. Uh, but yeah. the, the Bengals felt like, but they had. So what was interesting about that game? The Bengals' previous kicker, Randy Bullock, who was much maligned by the fan base and did not was not known for mm. the strongest leg. He was Tennessee's kicker. Meanwhile, the Bengals had McPherson, who they feel like has incredible range. And that is a big difference late in games and how they go through, you know, how aggressive they are. 
because they feel like right now they've got a good enough team that if the defense plays well and they get into field goal range, then maybe we can go ahead and win some games that way. And like, it seems dumb. It seems like it's very not how you're supposed to win a game of football, but it's worked for them. And maybe this is going to be the Bengals approach in the Super Bowl of all things that we're going to go out there and hope our defense plays well, hope Evan McPherson hits four field goals again, and we beat the Rams and we win the Super Bowl, which would be the most insane thing on the planet when your quarterback is, oh, by the way, Joe Burrow. But the thing that I, the one thing that has, and I am picking the Bengals in this, I've, I picked against them against Kansas. I, I picked against them against Kansas City and fans have given me a hard time for not picking the Bengals all year. And I'm like, listen, not a homer. If I don't think they're going to win, I'm not picking them. I don't care. But I do think that the the Bengals have proven me wrong enough and are playing a very weird and wacky way to win, but it seems to work. And, and I think that the, 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 but the one thing that gives me pause about, about my selection here is that the Bengals aren't necessarily built to win a Super Bowl. They were built to be good. The Rams are built to win a Super Bowl. Because if the Bengals actually thought they were going to win to the Super Bowl, they probably should have done a little bit more to, to help this offensive line. Mm. And really, that's going to be the that's going to be the number one thing about this game more than anything, more than all the other matchups we talked about. Is how much is this offensive line going to be a liability? Can the Bengals run any semblance of a normal offense? Can they get a lead early on? If none of that occurs, this could be a very ugly game. But you know, given what we've said about the defense and, and going back to your point about about Money Mac here, I feel like the Bengals have found a way that even though the offensive line has been a giant liability throughout the postseason, they found a thing that works. And I think that, you know, they're probably, I, if I had to guess, they're probably going to see if they're, they're going to roll it out there one more time and see what they can get. Because, I mean, they, they are playing with house money to some degree and, and they do 100%. have a very good young core. So, so it's just, I'm very fat. I usually, uh, you know, I, I, I don't always pay a ton of attention to the Super Bowl because usually it's at the end of the year and I'm like, I'm enjoying my off season. Uh, I'm gearing up. I covered football for six months. It's time to take a little bit of a break, but I am very fascinated in this matchup because for Cincinnati to potentially win it all, given how they've played throughout the postseason, it's just remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it just the contrast with the Rams in every way, to your point from team building, timeline, um, just the general approach, the strengths. It's just a fascinating, fascinating proposition. Um, ben Baby, thank you so much for lending us your expertise. And hopefully I will see you in Los Angeles. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Mina. All right. After the break, we are going to be joined by JB Long to talk about the Ram side of things. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Mina show today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Mina show, M-I-N-A-S-H-O-W. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. 
Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. And I have to say, speaking from experience recently, having tried it for the first time in Detroit, it is absolutely delicious. Right now, you can get $5 off any 8-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature 8-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, we are back. As promised, I have brought on a guest who I have been wanting to have on this podcast for a long time that is substantiated by our DMs. Because when I went back to contact JB Long, who is about to join us, I saw the last time we were in touch, I said to you, JB, you really want to have a podcast? Let's get you on to talk Rams. You know more the Rams than anyone ahead of a big game. And you said, let's do that. And then I hit you back. And you said, well, it is a big game. <laughs> if not now, it. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, you could go a little bit further back in those DMs, Mina, and basically it's three years running where I've said, I know about your podcast. I like your podcast. It has 4.99 stars, but really what I think you need to get over the top is to bring me on as a guest. What could I possibly do to earn my way on the show? <laughs> and three years running, your answer is get back to the Super Bowl. And we'll chat. <laughs> yeah, that's the real all-in aspect of the Rams. Not not all the trades and the signings. Getting JV Long on the Minikai Show featuring Lenny. It was all for this moment. Um, by the way, you guys, if you don't follow JB, he's on Twitter at JB underscore log. Uh, he is the voice of the Rams. You can listen to him on Rams broadcast. He is insanely knowledgeable about this team, which is why, of course, he is on this particular episode. Um, you know, I just talked to Ben Baby about the Bengals for a while, JB, and how they would approach this game. Uh, we're going to just hit everything from the Rams side. Um, and uh, God, I don't even know where to begin. You know where I'm going to begin? I'm going to begin with a conversation I just had on Around the Horn. No big deal. It's just on TV. Where um, the question was, should Jalen Ramsey shadow Jamar Chase? And this, I, I feel like there's like always like three or four questions that kind of animate Super Bowl week. Uh, and Ben and I spent a long time talking about the other one, which is how should the Bengals deal with the Rams' pressure and their awful offensive line? This one, from the Rams' perspective, I find fascinating because um you've been obviously covering this team for a long time you've uh watched every down that Jalen Ramsey has played for this team the approach that they have taken with him has evolved over time it evolved this season to where you know early on he was almost exclusively in the slot there are points where he was uh covering guys like DK Metcalf or Mike Evans in the playoffs so you are Raheem Morris Jalen Ramsey is your player the best cornerback in football by my estimation what is your plan I would say yes Mina because whether it would be in the preseason or week one or week 18 or a pro bowl or a super bowl I would pay money out of pocket to see <laughs> that match so selfishly yes. I want the answer popcorn to be yes but I think what's so intriguing about the question is that there's a case to be made, and you've maybe even made it yourself, that Burrow and Chase have become the best go-ball combination in the National Football League. And I don't think it's a deficiency for Jalen Ramsey, but it's maybe the one area statistically where he has been susceptible. 
Now the question comes up, will the Bengals be able to pass pro well enough to take advantage of that mm-hmm. and maybe test the Rams umbrella coverage? We can get into that. But I do think about how Tom Brady and Mike Evans Ugh. attacked Ramsey vertically Last on the outside. of his career, as Jalen Ramsey himself pointed out, was a go ball to Jamar Chase. Right. But for the better part of building that 24-point lead, Brady didn't have time. It didn't feel like it. It it felt like shallow and quick was the only option he had available to him. And then that game kind of turned, and that was one of my lasting memories. Now, Mm. the other part of it that I think goes hand in hand is that suddenly Ramsey has become an outside corner again this postseason, more so than he ever has been as a Ram, be it under Raheem or being under Brandon Staley. The the narrative of much of the last two seasons, as you know, Mina, is, is getting him closer to the action, closer to the line of scrimmage moving him into positions where he can impact the game apart from being just a shutdown corner. And what I think is really fascinating about why this transition is occurring now is because it's happened despite the fact that two out of their three playoff opponents, Arizona and San Francisco, did not have a traditional number one outside threat. Mm. Hmm. There was no D-hop against the Cardinals. And San Francisco has Debo and they put him in all sorts of different places. He's not isolated as a one. So Mike Evans is really the only true receiver this postseason the Rams have faced in that way. And we did see a good bit of Evans against Ramsey. Hmm. What do you think is behind that that shift, I suppose? Um, because, yeah, you're, it's a really good point. I think not Tampa you kind of makes sense, right? But with those other games, I I don't know. Like it's a little bit perplexing to me, especially because so much of having Ramsey at that star position or whatever was to have him as close to the ball at all points as possible. Yeah, I wonder if it's in part just game plan specific. If it yeah. has a bit to do with the leverage of the moment. If it's learning what the best way to deploy the assets that now include. Von Miller on the edge opposite Leonard Floyd and Eric Weddle organizing the chess match in the back end, like how the whole secondary piece fits together and and whether just deploying Ramsey in that fashion gives Donald the best chance to win his matchups and impact and influence mm. the game. Um, maybe it's a counter to how much quick game they've seen from opposing quarterbacks. Uh, Tom Brady bringing his time to throw down to career low levels. Jimmy Garoppolo always at career low levels, time to throw um, when he has games against the Los Angeles Rams. So it could be a combination of all those things. I prefer to think, Mina, that it's just a pure matter of crowdsourcing and the the loud, uh, vociferous callings <laughs> of the Rams fan base and um, all of their various social media and Reddit followers um, just <laughs> finally wearing Raheem Morris down. I think I complained about him not covering Devontae Adams earlier in the season, so maybe it was the Minicons' influence. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I love that point you made about the go balls because as athletic, instinctive, fast, smart as Jalen Ramsey is, you have seen him get toasted a few times over the years. And it is a, it's a not only, you know, obviously Joe Burrow, the um, ability to make those throws and the the courage to make those throws. But Jamar Chase is so good for a rookie at doing all the little things you have to do to separate uh, both, you know, at, in terms of his release, but also um, at the catch point and getting catching those balls. However, part of the reason why I just I think you're going to see Jalen on him more often than not, bulletin board material, Internet influence aside, is just numbers. 
Um, and this is why, you know, whenever we talk about the advantage of having a shutdown corner is it just makes everything else easier on defense. And especially in a game where the Bengals, you know, outside of J- uh, Jamar Chase have excellent skill players like T Higgins will eat. Right. If Jalen Ramsey's not on him, Tyler Boyd is very good underneath. Looks like CJ Zama is going to play. Um, and so being able to just simply put more bodies in coverage Put uh, also, by the way, if you want someone to spy Joe Burrow, you're freeing up more players to do that. We saw how dangerous he is with his legs. And situationally, if Raheem wants to dial up some of those five man pressures that you've seen during the postseason, all of the things I described are easier if you can just point to Jalen Ramsey and say, shut down Jamar Chase. It really is so mathematic, isn't it? And I, I think this has the feel of a Super Bowl that's like, a duel of who can play the softest, most conservative coverage, right? And stay over the top of the opponent's passing game. And knowing how clutch and how efficient both quarterbacks have been against blitzes and on third downs and in fourth quarters, it just, it feels like you have to resist the urge to attack the opposing offense and quarterback. Now, I don't think that's really how Sunday's going to play, but I agree with you that if you are trying to keep your numbers in order and if you're trying to devote personnel to coverage because both of these defenses can win with their front four then having a piece an asset like Jalen Ramsey might be the most important role player on the field to keep that concept intact if that is the direction the defensive coordinators want to go so um about that pass rush uh you know I I alluded to the five-man pressures it's interesting watching so the game I, the last game I watched, no, actually, I watched the Vikings game last, but the, the other game I watched right before that was the Arizona game because I thought, mm, you know, everything the Rams defense did against San Francisco, you can probably throw out the window because it was such a uniquely tailored game plan for a very unique offense. And by the way, Raheem Morris knocked it out of the effing park. So shout out to him for that game plan. But um, watching the Cardinals game, I was curious to see just kind of how they would contain Kyler Murray, um, you know, whether they would count on whether it was a defensive lineman or a linebacker to spy him and contain him. Obviously they did a fantastic job. And a lot of it was that fifth man, uh, you know, in terms of like an add on blitzer, but they also just blitzed the hell out of him because, you know, frankly, he struggled against it. Flash forward to Joe Burrow. This is a dude who's been like Matty Stafford. We'll talk about in a moment. Unbelievable against the blitz. Um, the Rams are interesting, right? Because they don't have to blitz. They have an incredible four-man rush. Von Miller has been outstanding next to Aaron Donald. Do you think, like, how 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 would you approach the pressure side of it? Because we all know, I spent the first half of this podcast talking about how bad the Bengals' offensive line is. Um, ben Baby was saying he thinks they would probably take a similar approach to last week in terms of having more bodies in to protect. How aggressive do you see the Rams being up front? Well, if there is any parallel to that Kyler Murray Arizona wild card game, it has to be to me the way that Burrow was able to carry his team to the finish line in that AFC championship mm. with third down scrambles. And no one's going to mistake him for Lamar or for Kyler. But I do think the way the Rams have used their blitz at times this season, including against Kyler and the Cardinals, it's a containment blitz. It feels mm-hmm. kind of counterintuitive to even say, but by sending those five, unless you have Kyler Murray's ability to retreat in the pocket and spin out the backside, they plug up his scrambling lanes. They essentially sew him into the pocket as best they're able to by sending that extra defender. Now, 
it, the the way that the Rams have been able to defeat Kyler, it feels like to me, is to kind of bring his eyes down, yeah. um, to take away his throwing lanes with their length and their rush and and just their havoc. I don't know that Joe Cool is going to react that <laughs> same way, though it might be worth testing and vetting early on. Um, but I, I just I can't see the Rams changing their identity just because of the threat that the Bengals present, which I happen to believe having enjoyed studying them and getting to know them is formidable. I mean, I, I think, I think they're awesome. I, I really do. I, <laughs> I enjoy getting to know them. And I think given their roots and the coaching staff and their 11 personnel base, like I, yeah. there is a tendency to think that these offenses are a lot alike. I don't think that's true, yes. but I have a healthy respect for how far they've come and how they're playing their best um, with the the skill position players and the quarterback and the offensive line they do have down this stretch. Yeah, that's a great point about the offense, by the way. I think, you know, people see Zach Taylor obviously coming from the Rams and assume that the offenses are identical and they run a lot of 11 personnel and they use a, you know, outside zone running game with some misdirection. But um, my friend Nate Tice and I had, a, he was explaining to me just kind of the various differences in the, the past concepts that they use. And um, there, there are a lot of differences and, um, as you mentioned, the from a personnel perspective, also very, very different um, the way that they're built, obviously, the offensive line, the quality of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Like, I don't think they'll shy away from sending pressure at times, but I do like the idea of using that fifth man to help, you know, contain Burrow. I also think the Rams defensive line, just from um, a body's perspective, is better equipped to contain Burrow than the Kansas City defensive line, who Joe put an absolute hell right <laughs> like with uh, uh like chris jones grasping at his ankles frank clark chasing him across the field i mean they, they just look like they wanted to die I, the rams defensive line and this is something that really struck me watching them contain kyler they're so fast and athletic and i mean whether it's von miller reversing field and chasing him down or greg Gaines bursting through the a gap and then flipping his hips these guys are athletes and i think joe's going to have a lot harder time pulling a Houdini on them than he did versus Kansas City. Can I add one more thing to that about the Rams defensive front? You're right. I think one of the keys to this game is capitalizing on your pressure. And what I mean by that is when you get hands on Burrow, you have to complete mm -hmm. that sack. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think the Rams have that ability, but they've also been burned by some of the quarterbacks, even in their division, like a Russell Wilson or Kyler Murray, an inability to, to drag even a Jimmy Garoppolo to the turf at times. But the other, the other point I wanted to make about the Rams' front four, and maybe they get Sebastian Joseph Day back for this game, Ashawn Robinson, I think, has been unheralded the way that he's awesome. played some of his best football. So good against the run. So good. But I'm glad you mentioned Because that. their pass-rushing prowess is so strong, and because they have those names, Vaughn Miller, Aaron Donald, Leonard Floyd, I think we overlook how good they are against the run. Those names I just mentioned are elite run defenders. Mm -hmm. And for a Cincinnati team – that is pretty stubborn, uh, running at a higher rate than you would expect or even recommend on first down. The Rams brackets, Floyd and Vaughn Miller and, and Donald and Gaines and Aishon in between them, I think they have a real chance to create some negative downs and distances if that's the way that Zach Taylor wants to play this. 
The Rams have also been so good at using their second and third level players to stop the run, run blitz, get tackles for loss. I mean, freaking Eric Weddle. Holy crap, he's been so good against the run. Um, so I agree with you. And, and you know, the, Von Miller, JB, when the trade happened, I feel like there was a lot of skepticism. Well, is it giving up this much for this guy? And early on, he wasn't getting the pass rush production maybe they had hoped for. But I still remember like those first few games um, watching, oh, like, I remembered he is so good as a run defender. It's like he's so good at everything else. I think that part of his game has sometimes gone underappreciated throughout his career in Denver, but he is fantastic against the run. And um, again, with this like outside zone running game, you know, he, he's immensely useful. Um, mm. The weakness of this Rams defense. Uh, I been a little hard on Troy Reader <laughs> this season. Um, but, it, it you know, it, it's very obvious where defenses want to attack the Rams, which is linebackers in coverage. Um, and by the way, you know, this is actually, I actually would love to ask you this because Troy Reader has been the starter, but uh, Trayvon Howard has gone snaps. And then Ernest Jones, who was their third round draft pick uh, this year, right? He also got some snaps last, a couple weeks ago. So he's going to be potentially in the mix as well. How concerned are you about with Joe Burrow and his quick release and some of the quick game they do over the middle of the field, the Bengals offense attacking the Rams there where I believe they're softest? I think you're on to something there. If the number comes to mind correctly, I think the Bengals are seventh in DVOA and passes short middle this season. So if they have a clear on paper advantage, that seems to be the one to exploit. But I think you touched on the potential personnel improvements correctly in that um, if Ernest Jones with that extra week to rest his his ankle injury, which put him on injured reserve back in Minnesota in week 16, I think he has the sideline to sideline run and hit ability to maybe improve in that area in a one game sample size. And let's not forget the way that the NFC Championship game ended with Traven Howard collecting the interception off that desperation yeah. fling from Jimmy Garoppolo. And Howard, if you remember going back a few years, had the potential yeah. to be the next Corey Littleton in this Rams defensive system. Littleton thrived so much under Wade Phillips and the Rams as, as someone who was a core special teamer but never really thought that he was going to excel as an off-ball linebacker. Well, Trayvon Howard is kind of in that mold too. And two years ago, he was in position to start, Mina. You remember this in your preparation probably. Mm -hmm. And in the final days of training camp, ripped <sighs> up his knee. Yeah. And he told me that he was in his car in the parking lot at Cal Lutheran, the Rams facility, in tears because given where he was drafted and how little NFL tape he had so far, he was concerned that his professional opportunity had just come and gone. Well, two years later, he just made one of the biggest plays in Rams history, and I would not at all be surprised if he plays a prominent role mm. to try and offset some of that perceived mismatch in the middle of that Rams defense that you described. Interesting. Fact. This is sort of the deep Rams preseason knowledge you only get on the kind of show. Uh, that well, and don't Kendall, get started on Kendall Blanton, right, I was Nina? just about to say Kendall Blanton. You got me. Um, well, heck, we I didn't even mention Nick Scott, who has been unbelievable uh, playing that center fielder role for the Rams. But I want to flip to the offense. Um, you know, something I've talked about a lot on NFL Live, my podcast we've talked about generally at ESPN is the way this offense has evolved with Matt Stafford. Basically, um, you know, becoming less play action centric. He's an empty more. He's making out of structure plays. He's still on the move. He's hitting the backside of longer developing concepts, all of that. It's all excellent. Um, but one thing I did want to ask you is, um, you know, this Bengals defense, 
really sucks against play action. I I, I was just, I, I felt like they did. And then I pulled it up and they are 28th in yards per play versus a play action pass, uh, allowing 8.63 yards. Do you think there's a universe in which uh, perhaps Sean McVay leans more on some of the Sean McVay uh, the you know the Sean McVayness of it all the uh, the Rams offense we saw a lot for years uh, just because of the matchup. I feel like you're onto something. Uh, you and I are thinking along the same wavelength. I can tell we did not you know <laughs> chat before this podcast, but I like where this is going because why don't we just come right out and say it because we've both hinted at it. These are not the 2017-18 Los Angeles Rams, despite the origins of both of these offenses and the coaches. They're just not. They're one, two in the NFL and 11 personnel. And that's about where it ends. And by the way, both starting tight ends, both of those tight end ones were injured in the conference championship games. It seems like Uzama is more likely to play than Higby, but that's for another day. Um, But to your your question, yes, I think this has gone to the 2.0 or 3.0 level version of Sean McVay's offense. But to your question, might they revert back to some of their roots I think so. I think of the two offenses, which one is more likely to go back to the 2018 Los Angeles Rams structure? I would say the Rams are, and here's why. Yes, Cincinnati's defense certainly has something to do with it. I feel like in the game plan for San Francisco, I felt a lot of that. Um, Mm. A lot of the quick game, a lot of the keeper game. Um, look, Matthew Stafford loves the full field reads. And and if you have him on waggles and boots, it kind of cuts the field in half. It limits his options. He's much better, especially with the Rams' weapons, being able to drop back and exhaust the whole play and even find OBJ late on that backside like you touched on. But with Cam Akers back, you do, I think, have the potential to maybe take more of a mauling approach with your running game and really start to get those big interior defensive linemen of the Bengals moving side to side rather than north and south in an advantageous way. So I'm not saying that, you know, this thing's going to flip back to Gurley and Goff, but of the two, of the two offenses, who's more likely to kind of touch on some of those older concepts, I would probably say Stafford Mm. and McVeigh. I have a great staff for you. This is, uh, I just saw on stats and info. you, You mentioned the waggles and boots. Um, so I talked about the Bengals struggling against play action. They are allowing the second most yards per attempt versus design rollouts in the NFL, 9.6. So again, mm. it might be a thing to lean on. And and I think you're right about put the that, running put game. Put our DMs for me, will you, Mina? I, I'm gonna, I'll send you that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think you're so right about the run game too, especially because, look, this Bengals defense is incredibly amorphous. That is... And they have really impressed me. And I have talked a lot about how much I underestimated in their adaptive adaptability, um, what Luana Rumo did in the last game in particular, but just generally taking advantage of, you know, a, a defense that unlike the Rams doesn't have three Hall of Famers on their in their unit. Mm-hmm. But um, the one thing I I anticipate they will do, and I'm not, it could look a, a bunch of different ways. They're going to dare Los Angeles to run. I feel pretty confident saying that, right? Like they're going to do, I mean, you know, they're going to have to put bodies on cup and then you've got OBJ and Van Jefferson, but the Rams are going to get, whether it's against, um, you know, the drop eight thing, which maybe they'll mix in some of that. He certainly gave them something to think about or just simple too high. The Rams are going to see light boxes in this game. And um, I, and you didn't listen in the first half of this podcast, I was complaining about how much the Bengals ran. I actually, I think that 
when given those looks, it makes a ton of sense for Cam Akers to get the ball, especially because, as you pointed, this Bengals offense is very powerful and they're very stout and sturdy on the inside. But I think he can run. He can outrun them on the outside and the edges. Mina, if there's one segment of this podcast I'm going to clip off and send directly to the Rams fan base, it's it's this exchange that's about to come right here, okay? So being close to it on a daily basis, I can tell you that without a shadow of doubt, the number one criticism of Sean McVay as a head coach and play caller is being too impatient and not staying committed to the run, right? Okay, so I know where you how you philosophize about football <laughs> and, and what the truth is. So please, I'm asking this question back to you. Yeah. Okay. With your national analytic perspective, <laughs> is, is there a modern coach more willing, more willing to run yeah. the football than Sean McVay more, more yes. committed to being balanced than Sean McVay, despite his perception from the interior? No. And sometimes I hate it, but I don't hate it in this game. That, and, and I always try to tell, whenever people say, ah, you nerds, you just hate running the ball. It's your reflexive stance. I always have to say, no, I hate running the ball, ball into a brick wall, but this will not be a brick wall. The Chiefs, I, I said last week, I felt should have run the ball more. The Bengals were daring them to run. And I just think, I don't think even the Rams have been particularly a great running team, by the way, although I think Akers has looked um, better and better. And I, I, I like his style and his vision. And I think he's got that explosive potential, but um if the defense dares you to run, run the damn ball, as my colleague Marcus Spears mm-hmm. would say, and then kill them with your play action, which uh, you and I talked about earlier. Um, I, I want to ask you a different question. Um, so Cooper Cup is basically uncoverable in my opinion. I um, just rewatched all of his third down catches in the postseason, and sometimes he's bracketed. Sometimes it's versus the blitz. Sometimes, I mean, they, 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 defenses throw every, sometimes by the way, he's inexplicably just ISOed on a slot receiver, but defenses try just about every possible uh, look at him and whether Stafford is hitting him on one of those choice routes that you see so much, or even, a, I mean, the, honestly, he runs every possible route. And, you know, this season, of course, he's been used more outside the numbers and vertically as well. Um, do you think there's any universe in which he does not have a big game? Sure. Um, I don't want to <laughs> live in it. I don't want to experience it. In part because, Mina, I think it's worth pointing this out, that to me going into this season, one of the goals was Cooper Cup needs to play in the last game of the season. Mm. Because when they failed in their last Super Bowl chance against the Patriots, Cooper Cup wasn't there. Yes. And when they lost in in the divisional at Lambeau, Aaron Donald was less than 100%. But equally importantly, Cooper Cup wasn't there. Now he is. And whether or not he goes off for prolific stats and coming off the triple crown season, it would be a fitting end if he is that, that cheat code, as I like to describe him. But are there other ways for the Rams to win if Cincinnati makes it its three-hour mission to make sure that Cooper Cup yeah. is not Super Bowl MVP? Yes. I do. The reason why that's so difficult, I, I have a discipline where, I mean, every time I'm asked about Cooper Cup, I have to compliment his physical attributes because we we immediately go to how smart he is and cerebral and, and all the cliches. But he was coming off a pretty serious knee injury last year, and he has had an elite physical season. And he reaches all your next gen, you know, miles per hour. He hits all of those metrics to me. But I do think 
that what separates him, one is the scheme that he plays in and mm-hmm. the fact that he can run any route from anywhere and he has a coach who's willing to put him in all of those spots, including the backfield. But I think the Rams have the benefit of essentially three offensive coordinators at any given time. Sean McVay, Matthew Stafford, with all the systems and all the years that he's racked up, and Cooper Cup. My very first training camp with Cooper Cup, I watched him fix a misalignment as a rookie mm. with, a vet, with a veteran receiver next to him who shall not be named. And, and at that moment, I realized this guy was different, and he's done nothing to dispel that notion ever since, including going viral with that NFL Network yeah. post-game interview <laughs> that he did. But I mean, I, and this is for another topic, another time. I'd be curious to know for you and your colleagues, my sense is that there are plenty of NFL franchises who would absolutely love it if their quarterback had an all-11 understanding, and all-22 understanding of football like Cooper Cup does from mm. the receiver position. Yeah, it, his, I mean, he's just so complete in every sense. Um, it, it's really, a, it's whether it's the route running, all the little things he does to get leverage, his knowledge of space and zones and concepts, or by the way, if the play breaks down, his ability to just scram, you know, do the scramble drill and play backyard football, he is really special. Um, and, you know, obviously his presence is, uh, opens up incredible opportunities for OBJ, and that's the other skill player I wanted to ask you about because, um, you know, during the regular season, there were moments where you saw, oh, wow, OBJ, like the hands, the talent, it's still all there, the route running, all that. But it really, like, in the postseason has hit another level. I mean, to the point where I, I think at this point, and this was, I, I believe this was updated after the championships, he now has the best catch rate of any receiver in a postseason in, like, 10-plus years, uh, which is was – not the case at all during the regular season. I want to ask you what's changed. Is it just familiarity with the offense or do you think it's the way defenses are playing them? Because to my eye, like, you know, I'm amazed by his hands and his ability to get open versus his own defenses. Is there anything else that's evolved though in terms of like how they're using him? Hmm. So not to make this about Cooper Cup, but one other thing about our previous topic is, by the way, if the Rams do choose a run-heavy approach, Cooper Cup may not put up big receiving numbers, but he's going to be leading the way on a lot of those runs too because he's also a fullback and and a tight end. But where I was going with bringing Cooper Cup into this conversation is I do feel like opposing defenses have done their darndest to make sure that the Triple Crown winner is not the individual to beat them. Um, Tampa Bay tried unsuccessfully. Others have done incrementally better but part of it too i think is by necessity with odell beckham jr because van jefferson has been less than 100 as part of the mm. trips receiving group um, because they've gone to more ben skoronic um, to help cover for their deficiencies at tight end because tyler higby has been injured and when they do want to get more stout in the running game having skoronic a rookie out of notre dame as that third receiver gives them some more oomph um, at the point of attack. And then Higby, I think, going down, even though Kendall Blanton has performed well in his stead, it, it's become abundantly clear to me, is I guess what I'm saying in this postseason, who the next best threat is on yeah. the field. And that's now OBJ, and it's not even close. And it wasn't just, you know, the line of demarcation wasn't just the postseason. When you look at the fourth down catch and the touchdown he scored back to back in week 17 at Baltimore. Maybe the biggest reason why the Rams ended up winning the NFC West when all was said and done. Like, that's when I really started to sense, and I think Matthew Stafford did too. 
let's really drill down and let's really make sure that we're on the same page because when the highest leverage moments of January and February show up, I got to know exactly where that guy is and he needs to know exactly when I want him and where I want him. And so whether it's a sideline throw against Tampa Bay sitting down in a soft pocket or a late dig as Matthew Stafford mm-hmm. holds on to the bitter end against Bosa and the San Francisco pass rush, like those are the types of plays that not only bring out the best in those individuals, Stafford and OBJ, but I also think unlock the Rams offense to an extent that we haven't seen it since it was really humming in the front half of the schedule. So let's talk Matt Stafford. Uh, you mentioned the last, what was it, Super Bowl 53, the one in Atlanta that they lost? Anyway, yeah, the three one years that, ago. Yep. The one they lost. Um, there's a play that just has been in my mind all week. Maybe we'll talk about it on NFL Live. And it was the uh, interception in the end zone that Jared Goff threw. It was play action. Had his back turned. When his back was turned, the Patriots rotated, I believe, into quarters. I got to rewatch it. Um, and he was confused post-snap, and he threw the pick to one of the McCordys. I can't remember which one. Um, so when I think about, like, what's the difference between Matt Stafford and Jared Goff, and why might the, you know, what could be the difference in this game amongst all the various other reasons we discussed, one of the things that comes out is, well, post-snap, Matt Stafford has both the um, ability to create and the athleticism to where, if you, you know, he he is – you don't need Sean McVay in his ear. <laughs> just let's just leave it at that. Um, yep. That said, JB, sometimes he freaking breaks my goddamn brain. I don't like what some of these picks, man. I don't understand it. Like I was just the tart drop. Uh, we were just playing that yesterday, and I watched it again, and I was just befuddled. Now it only happens like a couple times a game, but how? Con- like, what is your concern level, and how meaningful is that history? And it is very real of those maybe you can explain them to me because they're not when you watch the the Stafford like usually when quarterback throws interceptions you kind of identify oh he's bad under pressure or oh he gets fooled by coverage the Stafford interceptions don't make any sense to me like I don't understand them and I and I, I wonder if you have any theories on them or thoughts on how much they might mean in this game well first one of one of my nuggets that I hope comes to fruition and we get to talk about on on Monday is that the last quarterback to make the playoffs after leading the NFL in interceptions was the 2007 Eli Manning Giants, right? And they went 4 and all had to win four playoff right. games. His postseason run was great. They capped it off with that Super Bowl 42 win over the undefeated Patriots. And I and I think there's the potential for this to have a similar ending for Stafford, but Having watched every throw of the season, I have to admit that not only did he lead the NFL in interceptions, he had quite a few interceptions dropped too. So mm-hmm. like while there were some batted balls and some bad luck interceptions in there, I think that tends to come out in the wash. And that statistic is generally reflective of the turnover worthy plays that he made. Now, to kind of answer your question anecdotally, my lasting memory of the tail end of the Goff McVay partnership was almost sheer exhaustion on the part of the head coach and play caller because of how many Sundays and how many months and years he had to be almost perfect, almost letter perfect for it to go according to plan and for them to get to 30 points in a game. Now, I'm not sure that's fair to Jared Goff. I'm not here to tell you that it was on 16's fault and, and, and not the coach. That's not for this conversation. What I do think is different this year is that McVay knew he didn't have to be perfect mm-hmm. and that he could be more aggressive and take more chances. And sure enough, they went right back to being one of the most vertical, explosive offenses in the league. And I think part of that is trusting 
that Matthew Stafford has the mental makeup and the arm talent to overcome his mistakes. Yeah. If he does if he doesn't make mistakes, if he doesn't turn it over in the Super Bowl, I think we both feel pretty confident yes. what the outcome is going to be. He's played but great he outside does, of the turnovers. He's been awesome. He's yeah. been everything you could have wanted, but then the turnovers. And then that's the other piece though. If he does commit a red zone goal line interception oh. like he did in the NFC Championship game, against the 49ers or if he does have a three turnover performance like he did on the road in Baltimore he's still got the intestinal fortitude and the weapons around him and everything you need between the ears to overcome that and go win anyway and I I think that is is tough to articulate in terms of next gen stats or or the analytical things that we love I think I actually, uh, the evidence dude, I is actually, there. He, I actually think I saw a stat somewhere that he's one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history after an interception. God, I wish I saved it. I'm going to send it to you if I find it. But yeah, um, no, I, I know what you're talking about. Like yeah. the bounce back. He's got um, it, dude. He, it is quantifiable. And of course, you know, last I mentioned the, the tart drop a play later. Beautiful hole shot to OBJ, <laughs> right? And that's so like, that is exactly what you're talking about. Even if he does implode, like he will bounce back. And I want to say one other thing about that. this and sort of that last Super Bowl, something that's come up in, in this week in some of my production calls is, well, what do you think Matt Stat- or pardon me, Sean McVay has learned from that last Super Bowl where he came out after the game and said, I got outcoached by Bill Belichick. I wasn't ready for their defensive adjustments. And I was, you know, I, I think I'm sure Coach McVay has learned to be more adaptive himself and maybe he's more prepared for everything they're going to do. But honestly, the biggest change for him is just having a quarterback he doesn't have to call a perfect game for, like you said. And I keep going back to that interception. And to me, that's just the difference for both the head coach and quarterback. And here's one more anecdote to support your point, Mina, is I think one of my lasting visuals of this season and this transition, you know how we're so used to quarterbacks, coach, offensive coordinator sitting down with the surface while the defense takes the field. Yeah. That's pretty standard in the league, right? Yeah. Sean McVay over and over and over again this week on or this year on the coaches show and at other junctures was so intentional about saying what's different with Matthew is that by the time he hits the white on the sideline, he already knows. He doesn't need to look at the pictures. He doesn't need to look at the film. He sees the game the same way that I do. And by the time he makes it to the sideline, we're already addressing the same issue. We already know what the crux of the matter was and how to fix it. I'm picking the Rams. I had you on second because I didn't want to, I didn't want to spoil <laughs> spoil it in the middle. Um, that said, if Stafford throws a couple of those picks, Joe I, I Joe Burrow is an excellent quarterback. The Bengals defense is outperforming, and they're very good at getting turnovers. And I think they've got a much better kicker amongst other things. So I don't think it's going to be a blowout. I think it could be close. I think that the, the turnovers could change the game, but I just think the Rams are more talented. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I'm supposed to respond to you that. You don't have to. You don't have to. I'm just throwing okay. it out because I know people will be like, "What are you going to pick?" So I'm just throwing it out. You don't have to pick anyone. Um, Let, ben, yeah. I can yeah. offer you this, Mina. I'll say this. I because I know that you're like minded. I think the traditional stats and the quarterback play and the coaching connection and the fact that there are four seeds can present these teams as similar on paper. And so, yeah, there's a temptation probably for analysts and the public to buy into the Bengals narrative and mystique because it's good. It's really, really good. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of underdog picks. There already seem to be a lot 
But meantime, in the background, I think the analytics community seems to favor the Rams, correct me if I'm wrong, and with pretty good justification. Yeah, what you're seeing a lot is that the biggest mismatch in this game is the Bengals' offensive line versus the Rams' defensive line, right? Um, we can talk about you know Jamar versus Jalen, Stafford and Burrow, the coaches, but ultimately uh, in the trenches, there there's an advantage there. Um, but again, we'll see. Turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. All right, JB, as always, I wrap with a segment I call Dinks and Dunks. Five questions, four from me, one from Lenny. Are you ready? Ready for yours, Lenny's. We'll see. <laughs> it's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now it's time for Dinks and Dunks. I'm getting paid for this, right? Okay, uh, just one Rams question. I'm going to spin it forward again a little bit here. Um, everybody talks about how the Rams are all in, and I actually think they tweeted the gift from Rounders or something, so I they agree that they're all in. They're, they acknowledged it, at least via social media. Um, that said, I, I actually was just looking at the cap next year and the free agents, and like it's mostly going to be the same team. Obviously, Von Miller, OBJ are big free agents. Sony Michelle, um, who am I leaving out? Is there another defensive star? Darius Williams is a free agent, not a star, but anyways, of all the guys I named, do you think any of them will be Rams next year? I do. I do. I, I think it's probably not realistic to think that this entire nucleus is coming back intact, but it mm -hmm. does seem like. Von Miller and Odell Beckham Jr. and some others have an interest in staying in Los Angeles long term. And I think their pairing within the construct of this existing Rams roster contractually makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, by the way, let's hope that the ending to this movie is different than Rounders with respect to that all in gift. <laughs> yeah, when but, I saw uh, that gift, I was like, cool. uh, guys. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I do. Here's, here's a little um, teaser for my Rams audience, like the weekly game trailer that we do centers around all in as the narrative mm. arc of this season for the Rams and how I think the Rams internally define it and believe in it differently than the Super Bowl or bus narrative that maybe has been pressed upon them from the outside in. Yeah, those are two different things, right? Being uh, all in and focused on the present versus Super Bowl or bus, which Super Bowl or bus applies if everyone's going to be gone, not if you're same the same quarterback is going to be there next year but anyways whatever um this is sort of it's actually not a rams question but um it's a vikings question uh what can you tell my vikings fan listeners about kevin o'connell i love that you're asking me this question this week as opposed to last week because while i would have been able to gush and wax poetic about koc and wish him well there was a moment in the mic'd up segment from the nfc championship game that i was not expecting it was Cooper Cup's first touchdown in the red zone on third down and long. It was an improbable 
play executed to perfection. Great throw by Stafford. But what the behind the scenes video and audio showed is in real time, Sean McVay reacting with overwhelming enthusiasm, saying, great job, Kevin, great call. And I have to say, I was not expecting necessarily Kevin O'Connell to be the one with the autonomy to come up with that, to suggest that to whatever extent he influenced that play call. That was more than I expected because of how hands-on Sean McVay is and always has been with this offense. So maybe that's a good sign for Minnesota and Vikings fans and and a hint at what might be to come. Mm. Um, there's a lot of smoke right now about his not smoke, but like, you know, it's he they're saying all the things about his interest in Kirk or he likes Kirk, came in with a plan for Kirk. I'm inclined to think that hiring him means they're more likely to keep Kirk Cousins, who if they traded, they could save $35 million. Obviously, they'd have to buy a team or find a team rather willing to take on that kind of contract just because Kirk Cousins is such a shanahan quarterback. But we'll see how that plays out. Um, question three, mm-hmm. speaking of quarterbacks and, and potential drama, I don't know if you've been following Kyler Murray gate today. Um, for those who haven't, mercifully, blissfully, Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray, I always have trouble saying his name and not saying Calamari, strong, uh, unfollowed all the Cardinals accounts or untagged him. I don't know, whatever. You know what I mean. Um, big deal, medium deal, or no deal in your eyes based on watching this team implode in the wildcard round? I would say in and of itself, the action, of course, no deal. But if it is emblematic of something larger at play, I guess it wouldn't catch me completely off guard. And I come at this from a Rams lens and no team, of course, has tortured Kyler Murray and the Cardinals Mm -hmm. organization more than the Rams since Sean McVay was hired. Their win in week four uh, was the only one that Kyler and the Cardinals have had over Sean McVay. So um, I think of it through the context of if you were to power rank the NFC West in this moment in time going into next season, what would your mm. level of confidence be that Kyler Murray, regardless of what happens in Seattle or San Francisco and, and their quarterback situations, what's your level of confidence that Kyler is going to take the next step next year to overcome all the other playoff contenders in his way? Well, obviously, based on the last game, it's it was it was a terrible performance. I don't want to throw out what we saw from him during the season, but at this point, you know, you have a larger body of work. My general feeling with the Cardinals, JB, is like something has to change. I would probably hope that you can, I mean, I would bet on the young quarterback who has looked like an absolute superstar at times and try to find a way to help him take a, the leap and the next step forward. Um, you know, I, I've been critical about some of the front decisions they made in the front office, the lack of depth they had on that team, which obviously was very transparent at the end. I've been critical of Cliff Kingsbury and I've been critical of Kyler. But, you know, if, of those three characters, if I'm choosing one, I'm choosing Kyler and figuring it out. Just that seems to me like the best I'm, choice. I'm with you. And let me follow up with something in defense of Kyler, because I saw what that offense looked like up close and personal Ooh. with DeAndre Hopkins and then what it looked like without him. And I, I wouldn't want to, again, live in a world where you take Cooper Cup away from the Rams offense. So I feel like I owe that oh. to Kyler and the Cardinals. Fair. Although I think Sean McVay would do a better. Well, all right. All right. Um, question four. Uh, let's stay in the division and let's talk about the the last team that the Rams vanquished, the San Francisco 49ers. Looks like Jimmy Garoppolo will be on the move. Um, we'll see to where. I, I, I don't know. You know, I talked about it a little bit last week with Darius Butler. Um, 
What do you think about, so so if Trey Lance is the quarterback next year, as expected, based on what you saw from the team this year, three times, how good are they? I think they're still every bit good enough to win the Super Bowl. Um, and again, this is almost the photo negative or whatever you want to call it of what we just described with yeah. Arizona. San Francisco similarly has been a thorn in the Rams side. And that's why it was almost cathartic to go through that NFC championship game from the Rams standpoint, because we all felt like it was the last chance the Rams were going to have to defeat Jimmy Garoppolo, who, you know, with Debo and others was undefeated against them previously. Now I tend to lean in your direction, Mina, where you have pointed out, like when you have an asset like Trey Lance and you've devoted that draft capital to him, why not utilize him in some of those high leverage, short yardage situations? Um, and I also felt the relief that you described when they didn't do that and when they didn't go yeah. for some of those uh, fourth downs in plus territory, which is is often as as I measured a you know a go or punt uh, referendum. Yeah. Um, that being said, I I think they are year in and year out the most physical, well-coached opponent that the Rams go up against. And so I don't think changing out quarterbacks, especially if there's a belief that they can upgrade at that position, is going to change that struggle whatsoever from the Rams' standpoint. I think keeping D'Amico Ryans was enormous for them too, um, just to bring him back, given how I thought he was fantastic last year. We talked about it on this podcast. But um, yeah, NFC West, man. Still not a great division to be in, I think, next year. Um, we'll just leave it at that. All right, last question, as always, for our excellent guest, J.B. Long, comes from Lenny. Lenny's a big fan of your work, of course. Um, follows the Rams closely because of mom's involvement as well. Um, J.B., uh, Lenny knows that you are the, quote, voice of the Rams. Uh, he wants to know if there's a reason you're not also the face of the Rams. Wow. Oh, Lenny, you cut Brutal. me deep. Brutal. Come on, man. He knows right where it hurts. Uh, Lenny, it's the same reason why uh, this is an audio podcast and why we are recording with our laptop cameras turned off. Um, but it is also because of one Andrew Siciliano, who is the perfect ah. face for the Los Angeles Rams on the TV broadcast with Mina Kimes and Akeem Talib. We love Andrew. We love you too. Thanks so much, JV. Good luck this weekend. All right. Next time the Rams go to the Super Bowl, I'm saving this <laughs> hey, spot. I might take them next year. 